And I hope all of you have your Bibles, because you guys are my accountability. You know, it's happened more than once that someone's come up after me and said, you know, you said this, I don't think the Bible says that. And they were right. So just because I'm up here behind the pulpit doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means that the Lord has put me right here so that I can be honed in my skills and you can be honed in your skills. But please listen, please study, please think. Is that what the Bible says or not? Just swallow it. Be a Berean. Search the scriptures to find out if what we're saying is true. When I was in college, I uh, became a wrestler. So the wrestling team was coached by a guy who wrestled with Jim Elliott. And I thought that was so cool that I wanted to be, be coached by Pete Wilson. I only made it through one season, and I never wrestled an official match because the two guys in my weight category were state champions from their states. So I was like silly, silly putty, you know, silly putty. You know, you just play with it, turn it around and flip it over, and they did whatever they wanted with me. But I learned as a wrestler that there are three parts of physical fitness. Maybe you know what these are. Nutrition, eating right, eating enough, eating regularly, exercise, and rest. So if you only eat, and you don't do the other two, what happens? Right? If you only exercise, and you don't eat and rest, you turn into a long sinew. If you only rest, you become a sloth. All three, in right measure, make you a healthy body. Today, Peter challenges us to supplement our faith or exercise it with seven faith supplements. We're going to look at 2 Peter verse one, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Seems like a short passage, but let me tell you, I had a hard time keeping this sermon short enough. So let's read one more time, and this is in the English Standard Version, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 5 through 9. I hope you're uh, remembering the context from last week because this is built on that. I'll review it shortly after we're done. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities, the word there in Greek is things, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Our series is Escaping Corruption. Today's message is entitled Seven Supplements for a Fruitful Faith. You want me to use this one instead? Okay. Are we cutting out? Hello. Hi out there in video land. He starts with saying, for this very reason. What reason? What is he pointing to? He's pointing to having escaped corruption. Having been saved, having believed the promises of God, being freed from our sin by his grace 
and becoming partakers of God's nature, partakers of the divine nature, according to his great and precious promises and have his divine power and everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus. Because of that, make every effort, Peter says. So, watch out. Don't take another step until you know that you are a partaker, partaker of the divine nature. Because making every effort to add all of these seven supplements doesn't make you a son or a daughter of God. It doesn't matter how hard you work. You will never save yourself from sin. You'll never cover your bad deeds with your good deeds. It doesn't work that way. The bad deeds will still be there. The only covering for bad deeds is the blood shed on the cross in your place, which is sufficient to forgive you and to rebirth you as a son or a daughter of God. That's what it means when it says, for this reason. Since you're a daughter of God, since you're a son of God, now make every effort and add these supplements to your faith. Martin Luther said it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but that saving faith never remains alone. It always produces works. It always turns into service. Don't believe that your good works will save your soul. Have you escaped corruption? Do you have God-like urges in your soul? If so, you will be a servant. Oswald Chambers says this, to serve God is the deliberate love gift of a nature that has heard the call of God. Do you remember what Peter said about being called by his glory and goodness out of our sin into his magnificent light in order to be like God? That's why we're talking about what to do next. So there's two very big dangers. Either you depend on your works and you become a legalist. That's one ditch in the side of the road. Or you depend on grace and you do nothing. That's the other ditch. Easy believism, cheap grace, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. I don't have to do anything. God saves me anyway. He has to forgive me. I'll just live however I want. And when I get to heaven, it's because of Jesus. Both of those are unbiblical attitudes. So let's go through these texts again. Make every effort. It takes effort. Paul says run in order to win. I don't run like someone running aimlessly, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, he says, I strike my body. I buffet my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's what it means to make every effort. Reminded me this week of when I was training for a mile run on that mission base that I grew up on. Every year, May 1st, they had a mile run. And this was a a difficult run because it went over a hill. So to go around this base, you had to go up over a hill and then down the other side and then back to where you started for the finish line. And every year, I was trying to break my personal record. 
And one particular year, I just decided I was going to beat that hill no matter what. And day, in the morning, every morning, I would go out when it was still cool, and I run that hill five times. Run up it, walk down, run up it, walk down, run up it. And I, I'm going I'm to get the victory over this hill. I'm not going to get tired going up this hill. After a while, it got easier. So I started running it at night, too. That's the hardest I've ever worked at anything, I think. Somehow I was just so motivated to beat my record, and I, I actually beat it, got over the hill. But as I was thinking about what do we do to supplement our faith by making every effort? Friends, it's hard. It takes work. It takes money and time. You might not be able to sleep a whole night to make every effort to supplement your faith. Stay in, your, stay in the Bible now, because he's going to talk about what, what we add to the foundation of our faith in order to make it fruitful. We are saved by grace. That's one of the promises we believe. We are his workmanship. He made us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, for good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. Good works that you and I are prepared to do, or have been prepared for us to do, and you can miss them if you're not watching and making every effort. Let's skip down to verse 8. If you're open to 2 Peter 1, I want you to skip down past the list of seven supplements to verse 8, and we're going to find out what happens if you do them and what, what, what the reality is if you don't do them in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, he says, they will keep you from being unproductive and unfruitful. Did you know that you can have faith, saving faith in Jesus and be unfruitful? Paul says some will be saved as though through fire. Why? Because he says everything will be tested by fire and some people will have dealt all their lives in wood, hay, and stubble which will burn up and they'll get to heaven and they'll think, where's, where's all my stuff? Nothing, nothing made it because they were spending all their time and effort and energy and thoughts thinking about this world and not investing in the next world. He says... These, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, make them yours. You don't depend on me. Do these things, add these things, and make them yours. Make them part of your life. Make them increase. Make them increase. Ask your husband or your sister or your children if you've gotten more patient in the last three months. It's a good way to find out. Are these things increasing? Are you increasing in these supplements of faith? They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That shocks me that I can know Jesus Christ and be ineffective and unfruitful. That's easy believism. That's cheap grace. That's saying, oh, God saves me. Doesn't matter what I do. He's going to do it anyway. They told William Carey's son, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. Sit down. And William Carey got two friends and said, you hold the rope. I'm going down in the well and rescue sinners in India. And he changed history because he made every effort. Didn't do everything right. But he made every effort. Verse 9 says, For whoever lacks these things, these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former 
sins. This is what tells me that this is a saved person who's only thinking about themselves and their immediate gratification. Nearsighted. The person that only thinks about getting what they want right now, only thinks about number one. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed from corruption. They've already escaped nearsightedness, living for momentary pleasure and value instead of the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God through your life. You know, I've been celebrating weddings in the last couple years, some of them my own children. There's a huge joy in a wedding celebration of two people who have waited to commit to one another before they have enjoyed the pleasures of married life. It takes long view. It takes thinking. I'm going to make every effort to be virtuous in this relationship and not do it like the world does. Even though the world says, go right ahead, you can do whatever you feel like. I will do it God's way. And let me tell you, the celebration is fantastic. It's glorious. And so is the marriage, by the way. I got 35 years to show it. Make every effort to add these supplements to your faith. Let's look at the supplements. He says, add to your faith virtue. This is the word goodness used in the first part of the chapter that says God has called us to his own glory and goodness, excellence, strength, valor. This is strong, aggressive, light goodness. The ability to tell the truth when it costs you something. Paying for some, you know, this week I went up and got some water bottles, those great big gallon, you know, 20 liter bottles and I was loading them in my car and I was thinking about something else and I was in a hurry to get home and I got home and I'm unloading them and I'm thinking, did I pay for these? I didn't. I hadn't paid. So I thought, oh, I'll just go back next time when I get my, you know, next, I go with the same guy. So I'll just go back and pay double. And I thought, nah, can't do that. Turned around, wasted the time to go up the hill and go back and say, cheguei para confessar meu furto. Strong virtue, virtue that pays the cost, that wants to be good, that wants to tell the truth, that wants to love well. The knowledge of him who called us to his glory, or some, say, some translations say by his glory, maybe by his glory to his goodness. Act honestly, courageously, compassionately, with forgiveness and generosity and fidelity and integrity and fairness, prudence. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kids? Everybody was bowing down to that statue. And they looked stupid standing up all by themselves. They were ashamed, probably, but they did it anyway, didn't they? That's an example of virtue that is strong in the face of opposition, in the face of when it's not popular. You do what is right because God lives in your soul. You have a, a divine nature. He has saved us in order to serve him. And he has called us to his own glory and virtue. This is basically obedience. It's doing what he asks us to do. 
Somebody said, coming to church and going home without changing the way you live is like going to a restaurant and reading through the menu and not ordering anything. I think that's a pretty good metaphor. Or coming to your devotions in the morning and reading and then not going out and adding those virtues to your life with strong commitment, faithfulness, and effort. But then he says, add to your virtue knowledge. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say add to your faith knowledge. So these virtues are built one on another. These supplements grow out of each other. So you start with faith, saving faith, gives you the divine nature, gives you what Peter calls everything you need for life and godliness. And then you make every effort to be virtuous. But as you do that, you're going to realize that some things that you think are virtuous are actually not virtuous for other people. They may be focused on you. They may be making you feel good. Wow, is mission life full of that? So many good intentions. Tractors sitting out in fields because somebody raised $50,000 to buy it but forgot that it needed parts. Because they didn't think, they didn't study, they didn't plan, they didn't strategize, they didn't add knowledge to their virtue. They had faith, they had virtue, they forgot about knowledge. So our virtue needs to be smart. It needs to study. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself and a workman, a workman approved by God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study the Bible, but study other things. Study history. Study cultures. Study the people that you're trying to evangelize. Find out about them. Learn their language. Millions of dollars and years of effort have been expended to build buildings, give clothes, food, medicine, hospitals to the needy, and have ended up creating dependency and killing economies and doing more harm than good for the lack of knowledge. Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, if you've never read When Helping Hurts, uh, subtitle, How to Help the Poor Without Hurting Them or Hurting Yourself. Fantastic book about virtuous living with knowledge. And they say this, if we treat only the symptoms of those in poverty, or if we misdiagnose the underlying problems, we will not improve their situation and we might actually make their lives worse. That's what Peter means when he says, add to your virtue, knowledge. And I would say, knowledge of God, right? That's the main knowledge. Know God better through your mistakes, through your virtue, through your life. You know him for salvation and then you know him for a godly life. Add to your knowledge, self-control. So the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Nobody likes a know-it-all, right? When you get too smart for your own good, too big for your britches, somebody says, right? Always have the answer. They've always done something better than you. You know somebody like that? You tell them a story and say, yeah, let me tell you what happened to me. Nobody likes that person. It's not loving to be that person. So Peter's saying, add to your knowledge self-control. Susanna and I got to live with Dr. Russell Shedd for three months. When we first came to Brazil, our, our home was his home. And I remember that his wife wasn't there, and so he'd go out every morning, buy bread, and bring it back and set a table for us. Susanna and I would come 
thinking, man, we're going to have breakfast again with the great Russell Shedd. I have all these questions that I want to ask him. Dr. Shedd would come with a question for us. What did we read? What did we think about something he was struggling with? And we would end up talking more about ourselves and our opinions than listening to this great wise man that we were having breakfast with. And almost every time it happened, and I would go away and think, how does he do that? How does he make me feel so smart that I just keep blabbing and fill the whole time with what I've got to say and don't listen to him? You know how? Because he added virtue to his faith, knowledge to his virtue, and self-control to his knowledge. He knew a hundred times what I knew. He wanted to learn from me. Don't talk about it. I'm not even to mention humility. Philippians 4 says, Let your moderation be known to all men. Strike a balance between devotion, study, and loving service. I bet you can connect those with the three aspects of a healthy physical life. Devotion, study, and loving service. Self-control helps you do that. Beware of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not all knowledge is helpful. Not all knowledge is good. Paul says be innocent in the ways of the world. Be innocent in the ways of sin. Don't read every article that comes to you. Most of them are not helpful. In fact, they're probably not all true. Titus 2 is a wonderful passage. If your family is looking for a passage to memorize, uh, this one blessed our family when we put it to memory uh, several years ago. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Now remember, it's the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace teaches you to be self-controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And we are to make every effort to add self-control to our knowledge. And to, and to self-control, we add steadfastness. Steadfastness or perseverance. Keeping on, keeping on, some people say. <clears throat> Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in our well-doing, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. There's a whole list of scriptures in the New Testament that talk about perseverance, the value of keeping on. See, great faith is not necessarily deep faith, but long faith. It's the faith of Abraham who waited 25 years for the answer to his prayer and didn't stop believing. It's the faith of Joseph who had dreams as a boy that didn't get fulfilled until he was a slave and in prison for years. It's the faith of David who was anointed to be king and yet lived in a cave but kept believing. Steadfastness means praying no matter what until God is true to his promises. How often the devil wins the skirmish in my life because he keeps coming.
coming back to see if the door in my heart is open to temptation. That's what he did with Jesus, right? In the, in the, in the desert, Jesus slammed the door every time on his fingers. And he said he went away. The Bible says he went away until an opportune time. He's waiting for another opportunity. And that's what he's doing with us. Without steadfastness, you can win one little battle and then win the next battle and fall hard because you weren't steadfast in your prayers and in your virtue and in your self-control and knowledge. Of course, James 1, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So going through hardship is part of this. Let steadfastness have its full effect. What does that mean? Keep waiting on the Lord. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'll send you the list of these passages on steadfastness with the notes this week. Add to your steadfastness godliness. Supplement your steadfastness with godliness. This is not just gritting your teeth and bearing it, holding on until your knuckles are white. It's not by the flesh. It's godliness. It's patient. It's quiet at the center. It's Jesus praying through the night. It's uh, feeding that divine nature in your soul and saying no to the me nature that keeps raising its dead head out of the grave. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. You know, daughters and sons look, act, talk, spend their time, spend their money like their mothers and fathers do very often. Daughters and sons, whether you like it or not, you are like your parents to some, to some extent. And that's how we should be as newborn sons and daughters of God, more and more like him. That's what godliness means, being like God. Here's a thought for you. It's possible to be virtuous without being godly. There are virtuous people in the world who aren't godly. But it is impossible to be godly without being virtuous. Because inner godliness, piety, produces an outworking of goodness in action and words and thoughts. Your your virtue should be rooted in godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. What is Paul saying? The way to godliness is simply believe that he lives inside of you. It's by faith again. Godliness comes through his grace increasing in your life. Give space, give time, give room to the Holy Spirit to make you like your heavenly Father. But then we have a a switch, and he says, supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. This is phileo. See, up to this point, you can do all of these things on your own, on an island, in a cave, in the desert, by yourself. Individualist materialism is the great lie of our day. 
you are an individual. No one has the right to tell you what to be or who, to, who, you, who you are, who, what you need to do. And you're just material. God says something different. We are members of one another if we are born into the family of God. And so you cannot be godly as you should be without being affectionate for the family of God. Without spending time together. I hope you're not trying to do these things on your own. Without encouragement, without accountability. Do you have an accountability partner, somebody that you can confess sin to, call up and say, I fell into temptation, help me by prayer? Brotherly affection means caring for one another. You know, by the way, in high school, one Sunday evening, I was with a good friend of mine, just the two of us, and we were talking about something I can't even remember. And there was a sin that I had fallen into that I just couldn't tell anybody and all of a sudden God gave me the courage to just blurt it out said David 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 Kala hope you're listening David I'm really struggling can you pray for me his reaction changed my life he said <gasps> me too he said I, I couldn't tell anybody and now that you've said it I'll pray for you but you pray for me too and after that, we met every Sunday night. And we started a habit of accountability. He's an a elder in a church in Houston, Texas now. And the Lord set us on a trail of godliness, of brotherly affection, that sin can draw you to someone like nothing else if you will confess it, humbly share the burden and pray for one another until you get victory. You'll be brothers in arms, sisters in arms, like nothing else can make you. Don't hide your sin. Confess your sin in the right way, in the right place, to the right person, and God will make it into a victory, a, a nugget of gold in your soul through accountability. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. There's that same friend, friend love word again. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's brotherly affection. Godliness without brotherly affection quickly sours into self-absorption. See, Pharisees are those who don't want to get close to other people because they might get them dirty. It's going to be complicated to hang out with other people that aren't like you. Brotherly affection creates that bridge. And then finally, the seventh supplement of our faith, and I believe the original intent, the destination that Peter had in mind all along is agape. Unconditional love for everyone, not just for the brotherhood and the sisterhood, but for everyone. Like God loves, add, supplement your brotherly affection with love. It, it underlines the difference between these two. God is love. He wants his kids to be loved too. 1 Corinthians 13 says, without love we are nothing at all. 1 John 3, 16, 1 John is the place to go to find this love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So there are between 200 and 300 Afghan refugees sleeping on the floor of Terminal 2 at Guadalupe Airport. Now I'm meddling. That bothers me. Because I say I love Jesus and those he loves. And he loves the sojourner. And I don't think Calvary is doing anything to help them. What are we going to do about that, folks? How will we be the presence of God in Sao Paulo with those who are coming out of such a horrible situation? It's not simple. It's not easy. Ask anyone. But we must do something with what we say we have. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I want to end with that illustration that I've said from here before. You know what veal is? You all who are from North America probably know what it is. And I don't know if they have it. In, do they have veal in, in Brazil? What is it called, Colada? Do you know? Huh? Vitela? Is that what it is? So veal is a calf that only drinks milk. Right? Veal is a, a, a calf that's born, and they only give it buckets of milk, all the milk it can drink. And it grows big for couple of years, I understand. They have to build a cage around it to hold it up because it doesn't have muscles in its legs that are sufficient to hold its weight. So it stands in this cage, not allowed to move so that it stays nice and tender, drinking milk all its life until they decide it's not going to grow anymore. Let's sell it. I think that's a perfect illustration of people who come to church on Sunday and don't let it do anything for their lives. And they live in this box of a Sunday morning service that holds them up drinking milk, and they never exercise, they never do anything with what they learn, they're always learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth, and they don't even develop the muscles in their legs to walk with Jesus on their own. Always dependent on the milk next Sunday. Nice and tender, for the lion to come and devour them. God is speaking to us, maybe in a different way for each person in this room. And we must make every effort, not just to listen, first to listen, but then to make a commitment to do something different about it, to walk in a different direction, to add, supplement with our faith with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, with steadfastness, with godliness, with brotherly affection and love, so that we grow up into him who is the head. That's what he's saying for us to do. Father, help us. We want to be like you. You have paid the price. You have purchased us from sin and from Satan. You have issued freedom. We have freedom even to sin. Strengthen our drooping arms and our weak legs 
that we might develop muscles of faith that live the life you have bought for us so that the world will know that we are your disciples by how we love one another. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I hope God has blessed you as he's blessed me with his word this morning. We're going to stand and